We're uh, continuing our series on the book of Ecclesiastes called The Meaningful Life. We're looking at the meaninglessness of pleasure. The text we're looking at, if you open up your Bibles, is Ecclesiastes chapter 2, the first 11 verses. I'll read it for us. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit and trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. This is God's word. So we started two weeks ago um, by introducing the book of Ecclesiastes as the most realistic book in the Bible. It is the book that says that even if you know the ideal and pursue the ideal and are capable of achieving the ideal, sometimes you don't get it. The world is a messed up, corrupt place. And what it wants us to see is that if we do not have something beyond this life, then nothing that we do is meaningful at all. It is like vapor. It is there for a moment. It maybe gives us some pleasure or meaning in a second, but it is gone before we know it and and we are incapable of holding on to it. The book of Ecclesiastes, we said, is kind of like a chiropractor, cracking your worldview so that you realize how crooked you are. And so you can become aligned with Christ. And uh, so today we're going to look at pleasure, feeling good, and how many people pursue this as their meaning in life, and yet it is completely meaningless without God. What do you want to do? Uh, That was the question I finally got to. Uh, This past week I was in Edmonton for our Canadian branch of our church body's annual general meeting, and I was nominated for a couple different positions, and I was asked to consider these two positions to see which one I would do better in, and uh, I couldn't serve in both of them, so I had to decide, and so I talked to some people about which one would be better, and um, finally it came down to, in almost every conversation that I had, well, what do you want to do? What would make you feel good? Where's your passion lie? The question was inherently one of my preference, how I felt. It wasn't a question of what would be the more virtuous thing to do? What would be the more helpful thing to do? No, for me, it was pretty much a question of what did I feel like doing? This is very common. It's how many of us make our decisions in life. What makes me feel good? When there's two options and they're relatively equal, we finally go with whatever makes us feel good. Or if we're honest, sometimes the decisions aren't that equal, but we still go with what makes us feel good. Maybe you've noticed this if you're a little bit older. You've noticed that as you look at younger generations, you find that they are slower to engage in things like the work life or workforce or family life. 
They slow play getting married or getting into a consistent job. And even when they do get into consistent jobs, they usually get out of those jobs after a couple of years because they don't like the work environment or they want to do something different. And if you're one of the older folks that I've talked to, at least, this frustrates you a little bit. It's because of this thing called the new rich. Have you ever heard of this? The new rich. Uh, primarily among millennials and Gen Z, this is an idea that uh, being rich is no longer a thing that can be quantified in dollars. Uh, millennials and Gen Z looked at their parents and their grandparents and said, well, you guys got rich in dollars by working at jobs that you probably didn't like all that much in order to save up a whole bunch of money so you could retire comfortably and feel good. But they look at the economy and the world around them and they say, more likely than not, we're not going to be able to achieve that kind of wealth, even if we slave at our jobs now. So let's find riches, not in how many dollars we can get, but in how much fun and enjoyment we can get right now. This is called the new rich. Maybe you've seen it. Uh, but if you're one of those older folks who gets a little bit frustrated by this, just realize that it's the exact same thing that many of you have done just in reverse. It's seeking after pleasure. It's seeking after what makes me feel good. For those of you who worked a slavish job for the majority of your life in order to retire comfortably, what did you do? You delayed the gratification, the pleasure, until later. You worked for it so you could have it. The younger folks who are the new rich, they're just doing the opposite. They're pursuing that pleasure at first because they think they can't get it later. They will suffer later, probably, for pursuing their happiness right now. But it's all the same thing. It's people pursuing what makes me feel good in my life, whether I do it right now or I do it later. But this isn't just a modern phenomenon. This has been humanity's problem for millennia. Maybe you've heard of these two groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Uh, they're arguably the most famous philosophical groups uh, of the Greek world that Jesus was born into. The Epicureans were those who pursued pleasure as the meaning of life. Uh, there are two types of Epicureans. Uh, many people think of Epicureans as sort of this like gross hedonist, do whatever you want with whoever you want, however much you want, as long as you don't die like drink and party and smoke and have sex and do whatever. That's what many people think of Epicureanism, and, and certainly that's part of it, but probably what more encapsulated Epicurean thought was what we would think of today as like the, um, the, the lifestyle guru, like the super balanced life. Like you wake up and you have your morning routine and you're doing this and the cold shower and the yoga and the meditation and making sure you're drinking your shake of green stuff that nobody wants to know what's in it. And like your life is completely balanced and perfect and you're getting every little bit out of everything of your life perfectly. That was Epicurean thought. Either form was a pursuit of pleasure and many people fell into it. Whether it was do whatever you want, as long as you want, as long as no one gets hurt, or it was trying to find the perfect way to fix your life so that everything would go right, they thought, well, pleasure is the meaning of life. It's the way to feel fulfilled. The Stoics, on the other hand, may seem like completely the opposite at first, but I think they're more similar than you think. The Stoics were those who would say that the world around us is so chaotic, it's so unpredictable, that even if you do the right things, you can't really control the outcomes. And so what a person ought to do, if he's going to be a good person, is he's going to have a straight face, a stoic face. Maybe you've heard this. He's not going to let the things of life get him down or up. He's just going to remain calm through all things. Now, at first, again, this might seem like it is the opposite of Epicureanism, but actually, I think it's quite similar. While the Epicureans pursued pleasure, what the Stoics did was mitigate pain. They saw pain as inevitable in life, but they said the way to live life is to experience that pain and to let it go. 
So maybe while you're not on the one hand pursuing pleasure, you are mitigating pain. And so many of us fall into these two categories. We maybe even waffle between the two. Finding meaning in our life and the good feelings that we can feel or in doing our best to avoid the pain that is inevitable, inevitable in life. But the book of Ecclesiastes says that a life lived in pursuit of pleasure is meaningless. And I want to show you four ways in which that is true. If you're following along with the notes, this is the second point on your outline. There are four blanks there for how pleasure is meaningless. The first is that pleasure is disconnected. Pleasure is disconnected. When I say the word bank, what do you think of? I think for many of you, you would think of a place where you deposit or withdraw money. But if you're a thinking person, you, you maybe realize that there's another word that you can use for a bank, and that is the edge of water. When I say bank, am I talking about the place where you withdraw your money, or am I talking about the place you stand on to dip your toes in the water? Bank is one of these interesting words in English where, without a context, you have no idea what it means. The edge of a water and a place that stores money have literally nothing in common, but they are the same word, just distinguished by context. In many ways, pleasure is the same way. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes says it to us like this. He says, I deny myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. In other words, what he's saying is, I experienced all these different pleasures, but they were all completely out of context. They had no connection to each other or to any bigger idea. They had no connection to a meta-narrative, a bigger story about who I am. They just were. They were things that happened, a list of events in my life. They were meaningless. If you're taking notes with us, pleasure is disconnected because pleasure has no context. If you look at pleasure as the purpose of your life, then you have to say that, that those moments of pleasure are building towards something. But for most of our experiences, we, we can't even see a, a reason that that thing has to happen that way or another way. We, we lose ourselves in the moment of whatever we're experiencing without seeing a bigger story behind anything that we do. You can think about it in something as small as you, know, you, you sit down to watch a sporting event and you have a couple beers, and that's a, that's a pleasurable experience, but for what purpose? What does it do besides take some time out of your life? And the game doesn't really mean anything for the history of the world. The time that you spend sitting on that couch doesn't mean anything for your family or for your health or for your life. It's pleasurable, but it's out of context. Now, somebody might say, well, what if we do something more altruistic? Like, it's not just having a beer while watching a sporting event, but it's like, I'm going to go over to some, you know, far off land and I'm going to do some work with the Peace Corps, some mission group and help some people. And it's going to be an amazing experience. It's going to be pleasurable and it's going to be meaningful, right? Well, not if your life is only under the sun. Because no matter how much good work you do over there, no matter how many people you help under the, over there, if your life does not consist of anything beyond this world, then this world is going to end. All those people are going to die. It doesn't matter how much you helped them. Your pleasure has no context. And pleasure is disconnected because the other half of life then has no context. 
So let's just say for a moment, let's hypothesize that pleasure could actually give you meaning. Is your life always pleasurable all the time? No, your life is painful sometimes. It is frustrating, it is disappointing. You have to then say, if pleasure is where I find my meaning, then the other half of my life where I feel pain, or maybe more than half of my life, has no context, it has no meaning. It's just stuff that happens. Now, I think some of you who are intuitive, you're thinking right now, and we'll get to a bigger point of this later, but you're thinking, as I look back on on some of the painful things in my life, those often are the most profound things that happened in my life. They are in some way the most meaningful. We'll talk about why that's true. But you can't say that if all you have is this life. Because otherwise, all you are is a collocation of atoms just going about through the world, experiencing things through their nerves that maybe you perceive as good or bad, but you can't ultimately say, excuse me, say so. Pleasure is disconnected. Second, pleasure is selfish. Um, you can see it this way in what uh, Solomon writes for us. He says, I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. Pleasure is selfish because pleasure is often at the expense of someone else. Uh, It's often at someone else's cost, whether it's their time or their money or their humanity. Of course, that's not always the case, but very generally it is. And you can see that in Solomon's life. He had pleasure at the expense of his male and female slaves, at the expense of his harem, at the expense of those who would entertain him. And isn't it the truth for us as well? Very often the things that we consider pleasurable are at someone else's expense, whether it is at the time of our spouse or children who would benefit from us being present with them, whether it is at the humanity of someone that we use objectively, whether it is because we take the wealth of this world and use it on ourselves rather than someone else, there are numerous examples of this, but very quickly, pleasure can be something that I pursue for myself and myself alone. Third, pleasure is immature. Pleasure is immature. Um, In verse two of the text, Solomon says this. He says, laughter is madness. Um, That word laughter there is is finely translated from Hebrew to to English, but it's just a beautiful word and has a a whole wealth of meaning. And one of the things that it it has in it is this idea of playing a game or sport. And what the the author here is trying to communicate to us is um, pleasure for pleasure's sake is madness, right? Being happy for just the sake of being happy is madness. It's kind of the behavior of children, isn't it? When children play a game, they don't play a game for any other reason than just because it's fun to play a game. You have to be an adult that changes, right? I play rec league hockey. I do that because I like to make friendships and I like to relatively stay in shape. Not just because I enjoy the game. There's some added benefits on there. It's, it's pretty rare to find adults who play a game like a, like a sport for just the fun of it. But children do this, right? They play just for the fun of the game. But don't we do the same thing? I mean, very often we pursue pleasure just for the pursuit of pleasure, just because it makes us happy. We have no other reason than we just want to feel good in that moment, which means that pleasure has no higher good. It's just me. It's just what I feel. We might envision like the man-child living in his parents' basement playing video games all the time, just pursuing pleasure because that's just what he's going to do, but isn't it the case that those of us who don't fit into that category do the same thing often? Like, let me just give you an example. Like, if you scroll through YouTube shorts or Facebook reels or whatever they are on all the other social uh, media 
platforms. And you do that just to like get a good laugh. What's the point of that? Well, what good does that do? Who is that for? What does that mean? I think the best answer that most of us can give is, well, it's just me turning my brain off. You hear yourself? Turn my brain off? You know what happens when you turn your brain off? You die. But so many of us want to die while we're living because our lives are so chaotic, they are so overwhelming, that even though we wouldn't actually pull the trigger, we would rather not live for a little while. And so we drown ourselves in the meaninglessness of whether it's entertainment or play for the sake of play, pleasure for the sake of pleasure. Pleasure is immature because pleasure often turns your brain off. Which brings us to the last point. Pleasure is subjective. Uh, Our society is wrestling with this right now. Is it okay for someone to do something just because it makes them feel good? Are you allowed to sleep with whoever you want to sleep with just because it makes you feel good? Are you allowed to say whatever you want to say just because it makes you feel good? I think every one of us in this room would say there's probably a line there, and we might differ on where the line is, but there is a line. There's a line where what you want to do, what feels good, is not okay. The problem is we can't say that in a life under the sun. If we have no outside moral standard of what is absolutely good or bad, none of us can say to somebody else, you can't do it, even if it feels good. That's why we're wrestling with it as a society. In a society that has largely removed any sort of supernatural or transcendent being from our daily discourse, we're wrestling with, well, why can't I do whatever I want, whatever feels good? And the philosophical answer we're coming to is, there's really no good reason. That's because pleasure is subjective. What I feel is what I feel. It doesn't matter what you think about it. I think there are a couple things that we need to wrestle with on this for ourselves as Christians. Because as Christians, we do actually believe that there is a moral absolute, that there's a God outside of this universe who says that some things are right and some things are wrong and that you can't just pursue whatever you feel like doing because you feel like doing it. And sometimes we're really good at identifying that in the culture. We'll say that's wrong because God says it's wrong. You can't pursue that pleasure because it's morally abhorrent. But sometimes I wonder if we Christians don't fall into the same trap. We maybe are able to point out the things that are pursuits of pleasure that we have not approved, but we fall into the pursuits of pleasure that we have approved. We drink, or we speak, or we post, like the people around us, because it makes us feel good, and it's relatively societally approved. We treat people like less than God would treat them, because it's relatively societally approved. I know I've shared this story before, but it just keeps coming back to me, and I think it's important for us all to meditate on. There's a New York Times op-ed about a gay man who went into a church. He wrote about his experience, and he he said, I understood that the church was not same-sex affirming, and I knew that if uh, I wanted to be part of that church, I would have to deny myself and my desires. But my problem was, I didn't see anybody else in there denying their desires. Well, maybe no one else was struggling with same-sex attraction like he was, He didn't see anybody fighting their greed or their heterosexual lust or their vanity or their gossip or their impatience or their anger. 
What if we as Christians would meditate on this and say, maybe there's something for us to learn. Maybe we see these, maybe you'd say, gross Epicurean pursuits of pleasure, and we say, those are really bad, but how quickly we try to find a little balance in our life so we can pursue pleasure as well. At the end of this, what we have to say is that pleasure is meaningless. It disconnects us from ourselves and our reality and other people and ultimately leads us into a listless floating through life, a purposeless, vaporous, meaningless existence. But you, Christian, have an answer, right? You know that this world under the sun is not all that you have. You have a God who is transcendent, who stepped into this world to save you. And so you have three things that you can think about as you think about what it means to have meaningful pleasure in life. If you're taking notes with us, that's the last point on your outline. Three thoughts for meaningful pleasure. The first is to remember your meta-narrative. We said a meta-narrative is a story that tells the bigger story. Right? It's not just one chapter in a book, it's the entire book. One chapter might tell a part of that story, but there's a whole book within that, that chapter is contained in that explains what's happening in that chapter. Your life is not just one chapter ripped out of a book. It is a chapter placed into a larger story of God's salvation narrative, that God saw you as broken and pursuing pleasure just for the sake of pleasure, and yet he stepped into your place to take all the meaninglessness and sinfulness of your life so that you could be free. So you wouldn't just have to exist chasing the next thing that makes you feel good, but that you could have purpose, that you could have meaning in life. To the extent to which you remember the uh, meta-narrative, you will see the life that you have and the pleasures that you have as a gift. Jesus says it like this in John 16. He says, Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again. You will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. It's kind of like the marshmallow test, right? We get that one marshmallow, and then Jesus says, this is good, but there's something so much better. Like, you think these little things that you chase after, they're going to make you happy? Only for a moment. What's going to come later is going to be so much better, it's going to blow your mind, so wait for it. Remember, you're part of a bigger story. And then, grace upon grace, like I said to the kids, you get to keep the marshmallow. Like, God doesn't do this thing where he says, there's so much good coming later, so now you have to suffer. He doesn't do that. He created this world to be a pleasurable place for you and for me. And even though it's corrupted, it still has many pleasurable things in it. And you can enjoy them. They're God's gifts to you. Not to find meaning or purpose or an end in and of itself, but to enjoy as gifts from your Father in heaven. You know, if you like drinking good coffee or having amazing food, a good glass of wine a beer on the porch, a hike to a mountaintop, a beautiful sunset, a swim in the lake. If you like a good book or a good movie or good sex or a good video game or or whatever you like, like God gave it to you. You can enjoy it. It's yours. And something better is coming. Like God is so good to you. He's such a good father that he wants everything good for his children. 
He just doesn't want you to find your purpose in it right now. Enjoy these little tastes of what life will be like when Jesus comes back, when it will be so much better. So now we give thanks. In this moment, the way to avoid finding your purpose, your meaning in your pleasures is to give thanks. To illustrate this, think about walking down the street and you find some money on the ground. Regardless of how much money it is, let's say it's a nice big whopping amount. That's pretty great. Um, But what if that same amount is gifted to you by somebody that you love? Same amount of money, a whole lot more meaning. This is what we have from our God. While everyone else chases the pleasures of this world like money found on the ground, we chase these things as beautiful gifts from our Father who wants us to enjoy them. And so like Paul says to Timothy, give thanks. Everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So super practical, whatever you like to do, any of those things that I listed or something else, train yourself as you do it to say, thank you, Jesus. And if you're able to do that, I think more often than not, you will not find your purpose, your meaning in those pleasures. You will enjoy them as gifts from your Father. Which leads us to the third and final point. Enjoy God's gifts with others. We said that pleasure inherently makes us selfish. A pursuit of pleasure on its own terms certainly does, but what God wants us to do is to find pleasure in enjoying things with others. When God created the perfect world, the Garden of Eden, the most pleasurable place that has ever existed on this planet, he said it's not good for the man to be alone. In other words, in the place where objectively the most pleasure could possibly happen, it was not good to do it by yourself. Which means that the joys that we are receiving from our Father, we ought to enjoy together. That's going to look different for every person. But why not bring somebody along? Whether it's a spouse, a friend, a fellow church member, a neighbor out there, enjoy God's gifts with other people, and you will find meaningful pleasure. Let's pray. God, thank you for the many gifts which you shower upon us. They're overwhelming to the point where we can start to think that they themselves are our God. Help us to repent and to turn to you. See you as a good father who gives these things to us as a foretaste of the joy that is to come. Help us never to lose that perspective as we enjoy the gifts that you have given us. In your name, amen.